This episode is brought to you by Vimeo, home to the world's best filmmakers. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no film school podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I am Emily Booter. And I'm John Fusco. In this week's episode, we'll preview the Sundance Film Festival, which starts today, and discuss new filmmaker-friendly divisions at Vice and Nat Geo, as well as what camera to buy for your documentary shoots. As always, we'll bring news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show. As always, we're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, and we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. We are super, super excited to be recording this show a little early this week for the best possible reason. By the time you're listening, we'll have met up with our colleague Oakley Anderson Moore in Park City, Utah, to cover the Sundance Film Festival. And we won't be alone. According to their fact sheet, last year's festival was attended by more than 46,000 people. Wow. Sundance, of course, has become our country's most celebrated film festival in its relatively short life. It was founded in 1985 by Robert Redford, so that makes this year 33. It's older than some of us. It may be younger than others of us. May. And looking at, like, my film festival previews every week that we do, there are some much older festivals out in the country. This one just became so prestigious so quickly. Absolutely. It's probably just because Redford did did such a great job with it. So one of the many announcements that's been made since we first shared this year's statistics was the festival judges, who really have a lot of power to determine what the kind of films to watch in 2017 will be. The lineup this year includes some actors I really like, such as Gail Garcia Barnell and Peter Dinklage on the U.S. Dramatic Jury, and some incredible industry stalwarts, like Susan Lacey, who's been the EP of American Masters on PBS for 30 years. She's on the U.S. Documentary Jury. If you want a little taste already, three of the Sundance shorts were released online this week, and we've got them up at nofilmschool.com. What shorts are those? You'll have to go to the post to find out. Great. (laughs) The festival, of course, has also announced its opening night film, An Inconvenient Sequel. Is that its actual title? It is indeed. So that's what they went with? Yes. Pretty good. Um, I like it, because it is inconvenient that we actually have a sequel, like, dedicated to this still. It's inconvenient to everyone on the planet. Yeah. Yep. In fact, you can almost talk about climate change in terms of B.C. and A.D. and inconvenient truth, because it's hard to overstate the importance of Davis Guggenheim's 2006 documentary featuring Al Gore. And no, Al Gore did not direct it. That is a common misperception. He also didn't invent the Internet. That film brought climate change into the public discourse for really the first time and caused so many people to change their perspective on the issue. Now, 10 years later, Gore is back at it in a sequel, this time directed by Bonnie Cohen and John Shank, which will be released by Paramount later in 2017. An inconvenient sequel will premiere as part of Sundance's New Climate section, which highlights 14 documentaries, short films, and virtual reality experiences with environmental themes. Participant Media, one of my favorite companies in this space, is once again behind the project, and its executive producer, founder, and chairman, Jeff Skoll said, quote, a decade after we took a risk in backing a film centered around a slideshow presentation and one human's quest to awaken global consciousness about our changing planet, we are proud to bring global audiences a promising update that a future powered by clean, safe, renewable, inexpensive, non-polluting energy is no longer a dream, but a very attainable reality. Oh, that's nice. Oh, so this one has like a positive spin. Yes. Action items. Makes me more curious to see it. 
as we are eager to see so many of the uh, films. So before the big festivals, we always share the films we're most excited to see. We've done it for, for every one of the festivals that we've covered this past year. And I have to say, this time was much harder for me than others. One, because you sort of have to assume everything's going to be good, like it's Sundance. But also because every single film that screens um, at Sundance, except in the spotlight section, is a world premiere, we have very little, if anything, to go on in kind of making these judgments and deciding which of the hundreds of films we're even going to see. But that being said, we've done our roundup. So who wants to start? I will. I would just say that, yeah, that like the whole not knowing very much about the films makes it even more exciting in that regard. Yes. And that's something that I really didn't take advantage of last year when I went for the first time was that, you know, I went and saw movies that I knew something about. But this year... I'm excited to say that I know nothing about any of the films that I'm seeing. That's not entirely true, but I picked 10 that I thought would be um, really interesting to see based off the little that I've heard of them. So the two that I would like to highlight here um, that I'm most excited about seeing are Kuso. We'll start with Kuso. I'll keep you on the edge until my next one comes up. So here's Kuso. Kuso is the debut feature of Steven Ellison, but you might know him better as Flying Lotus, the DJ. And he's known for being a pretty out there dude. The public was first treated to a glimpse at the DJ's taste for the absurd through various promo spots he scored for the boundary-pushing late-night TV network Adult Swim. These are like bumpers that they would put at the end of like shows like Aqua Teen Hunger Force, things that I would watch in high school, basically. He's been around for a long time. So after a series of successful yet still heavily experimental albums, along with several mind-boggling music videos, the video for Never Gonna Catch Me with Kendrick Lamar is one of my favorite videos ever, check it out if you haven't seen it, Ellison has made a turn to the world of film. Or maybe it's more of a return, considering he once attended the Los Angeles Film School. Interesting. Yeah, that's how he got his start, actually, kind of. I mean, he got his start through the Adult Swim promos, kind of, but then... I guess he got that through his work at film school. I'd be interested to learn more of that about that, and I might be able to learn more about that because I might be interviewing him next week. There's a very strong chance I am. Regardless of the fact that he went to Los Angeles Film School, he didn't really make any films while he was uh, making it as a DJ. His debut short, Royal, premiered at Sundance Next Fest in L.A. last August, where viewers were provided with their very own barf bags branded with the movie's title. What's the movie's title? Royal? Royal, yeah. Oh. It had like it was, as, it was as if like the poster was on the barf bag, but there was no images or anything. It was just like the title and then like directed by Steve, which is what he goes by, and then like actors and editors and stuff. And that was all put in place because the movie had some really, really grotesque shit going on in it. I think it's about um, a couple that both have this really weird skin disease that makes them ooze everywhere. Oh, and God, no. They have, like, this sexual relationship. No, don't bring that into and it. And there's lots of, yeah, like, body oozings in the sexual oh, relationship I and, like, puppetry. Barf bags. Yeah, like, apparently he actually did the puppetry for, like, some of the more intimate Oh, they're scenes. puppets. No, 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 they're real actors, but there was puppet, I think there was an- anatomical puppets is what I had infer- I don't. <laughs> not too much has actually been said about They're the oozing film. pores are puppets. Yeah, it's supposed to be incredibly explicit. So, needless to say, it works perfect for the midnight movie category, and I'm really excited to see it. Ellison says that it's about everything he's ever been afraid of, and I'll admit it. I'm also kind of afraid to see it, <laughs> but I am very stoked. 
Emily, what about you? Well, I will tell you what I'm most excited to see at Sundance, but I just wanted to mention the fact that I was able to pre-screen a really interesting documentary premiering at the festival um, just last night. And just about 30 minutes ago, I got off the phone with its director, a 29-year-old woman named Jennifer Brea, whose life was suddenly upended by chronic fatigue syndrome, causing her to be completely bedridden. It's a really sad story of basically a woman losing everything day by day until all she has is the ability to be awake for a couple minutes a day and have the energy to walk to the kitchen and back once. She made the film almost entirely from the confines of her bed. That's crazy. Yeah. She she created this technology, um, or she didn't create it, but she co-opted this technology um, that allowed her to direct remotely. And she did all of her interviews all over the world via Skype. Um, and I can't wait to share the interview with everyone because it's really, really incredible. She said the film saved her life, quite literally. But another doc I can't wait to see at the festival, it actually hits very close to home since it's about the changing media landscape and the threat to free speech, which conspired to kill a beloved New York publication we all know as Gawker. The film, Nobody Speak, Hulk Hogan, Gawker, and the Trials of a Free Press, reveals the forces that brought down the news portal through in-depth interviews and behind-the-scenes access to its founder, Nick Denton, and other journalists and media experts. But ultimately, the story is a lot bigger than Gawker itself. It's about the deepest underpinnings of our own democracy. And director Brian Knappenberger is a Sundance alum, so he's bound to have something interesting and new to say. Having premiered his documentary, The Internet's Own Boy, the story of Aaron Schwartz, back in 2014. I'm so glad you chose Docs. And actually, I'm so excited to hear about one of the Docs on John's list, which is Whose Streets. It's getting tons of buzz. Yeah, I don't know. I'm jealous you get to see it. I don't think I told you, but I'm doing a roundtable with like a ton of the people involved with that movie on Friday. Oh, do you know if my friend Jennifer MacArthur's on it? Uh, she might be. I don't know. Sweet. She's a producer. Anyways, Great. it sounds awesome yeah. and very timely. Yeah. Um, and funny enough, I chose two non-docs. The first one is called Lemon by Janissa Bravo. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce her name, but I will find out when hopefully I interview her. It's spelled J-A-N-I-C-Z-A. Janissa? Janissa? Jan- I don't know. I'm going with Janissa. I think maybe Janisha. Oh, Janisha is a great guess. Yeah. I like that better. Maybe. Janisha Bravo. This is a total kind of flipping the script film, and that's why I'm excited about it. We all know that the vast majority of mainstream films are directed by white men, which also means no matter how well-intentioned they are, almost every story um, that's been told on film about a woman or a person of color has been told from the perspective of a white man. Now, this is totally upending in that... Janissa is a black woman making a film about a white man. Um, And I love that kind of twist on the whole thing. The fun fact about the film is that that white man, (laughs) its main character, is played by the film's co-writer, Brett Gelman, who also happens to be Bravo's husband. He plays a sad sack trying to pull his life together after a breakup. And you might recognize his name from his role as Brett Mobley from the Adult Swim series Eagleheart. John? Yeah, he's on Comedy Bang Bang a lot too, the podcast. Um, he was also in Joshy last year. You'd definitely recognize him if you saw him. He's got kind of like a baritone voice. and An up-and-coming comedic, or not even up-and-coming, no, like an established comedic yeah, he's established. talent. He's, I think it's also Your Pretty Face in Hell, or I'll See Your 
pretty face and howls. Oh, all right, settle down over there. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, <laughs> Janisha Bravo has already shown a strong directorial hand with her short film Gregory Go Boom, which played it, um, which actually won the Sundance Short Film Jury Award in 2014. And she made a VR narrative short, Hard World for Small Things, that I saw at Tribeca Storyscapes last year and was really impressed with her ability to tell a good story in VR. And I have to say, this feature shows all the signs of continuing along those same lines of success. Another one that sounds pretty uh, unconventional that I'm pretty excited about is one called Menasha by Joshua Z. Weinstein. Um, it also appears in the next section, as Lemon does. And there are a lot of things that intrigue me about this one, mostly that it's just taking a lot of, of risks. Um, it's a feature film in Yiddish, which feels pretty risky in and of itself. Ahoy, Gewalt! I'm going to just plots over this film. Um, but seriously, it's a language spoken only by the minority of a minority. So to try to capture an audience starting from that place is is a risk that I appreciate. Also, it seems like it's going to tread on that kind of interesting fine line between reality and fiction, which I always appreciate. It's a narrative film about a man named Menasha from New York's ultra-Orthodox Hasidic Jewish community starring a man named Menasha from New York's ultra-Orthodox Hasidic community. So very intriguing. I, I mean, I have a personal interest in this one because my feature documentary, Battle for Jerusalem, that's in production now is about the ultra-Orthodox community in Israel. But Aside from just all those interesting facts, I really trust the taste of Rooftop Films, who awarded this film a grant this year. And the team around it's really amazing, too. The co-writer is Musa Saeed. Emily covered his film Astray last year. The DP is Yoni Brook, whose Valley of Saints won at Sundance uh, a couple years ago. And Chris Columbus, who EP'd The Witch, just came on as an EP this week. So this weird little Yiddish film has traction. I feel very verklempt about this. <laughs> um, so for my other pick, um, I want to take you back to the beginning of last year. And I highlighted this really unique filmmaking opportunity where you could submit a memory, any memory that was yours and that you had filmed, for a chance to be featured in a movie. And the, that movie is now premiering at Sundance. It's called Rememory, and it's directed by Mark Polanski and stars Peter Dinklage, second mention of Peter Dinklage on this podcast. Thanks. <laughs> it's essentially the first feature film with crowdsourced elements because they took these memories and put them into the story. Um, it's about a brilliant professor who mysteriously dies on the eve of releasing his life-changing invention, which records and plays memories. So in addition to Dinklage, Rememory also features one of the last performances of Anton Yelkin, which will be really mm. sad to see and kind of a nostalgic film in which to see it about memory itself. Very interesting. It's not the first crowdsourced feature. Like one even that first. India in a Day that I talked that I uh, talked about at TIFF was crowdsourced from footage from all over India, but this sounds like a different take. Is it fictional or nonfiction? It's fiction, so that's that's what's interesting about it. Oh, it's wow. like because they've done movies like Earth in a Day and things like that, but this is they wrote the memories into the the script itself. Like they didn't finish writing the script until they had chosen memories to incorporate. Fascinating. Cool. And now my second pick. I knew you all were hanging on the edge of your seats. Is Brigsby Bear, which is premiering in the U.S. Dramatic Competition. I've been a Kyle Mooney fan ever since I first saw his weird little interviews that he would conduct for the Good Neighbor YouTube channel. Uh, I watched these in high school and they were actually like a pretty big influence on me in when I was like trying to do 
comedy stuff. Uh, I didn't know you try to do comedy I stuff. I mean, I don't really try to do comedy <laughs> stuff, but <laughs> didn't try that hard. But in it was college, a big influence. Yeah, I mean, like the whole he has this. Uh, his straight man abilities are really uh, they're easily comparable to sort of the anti humor wave of Tim Heidecker and Eric Wareheim and John C. Riley and the whole. You're great at being a straight man, John. Thank you. Um, the whole absolutely sort of production crew that does a lot of stuff with Adult Swim. In 2013, though, Mooney found his way on a more mainstream path after he was cast on Saturday Night Live. So Mooney has brought some of these YouTube characters to SNL, but sometimes his style of comedy seems to blend in unevenly with the show's direction. Brigsby Bear was co-written by Mooney with the director and Good Neighbor co-founder Dave McCary. And this will provide him with the opportunity to really let his weird humor fly. Mooney plays a man-child who is raised by a children's TV show that has been specifically produced for him. So, like... Like, for his childhood development? Yeah, like, it, it's just produced for him as a child and then as he's grown into a man. So, I imagine he... Again, there's not much detailing the plot out there, but... um. I imagine he's still watching it. (laughs) So then when the show abruptly ends, it becomes clear that his life is a lie and he must figure out what the outside world is actually about. It's really exciting uh, also because all three members of the Lonely Island, which were a crew that managed to sort of pave the way for talent like Mooney with their own digital shorts, um, they're all producing it. Uh, So... Yeah, I'm excited to see it. So obviously we'll be covering more than just films and, you know, we have some of our interviews lined up. So let's give a little preview of that stuff. Well, personally, I'm really looking forward to interviewing one of my personal inspirations. Her name is Kate Shortland, and she's a an Australian filmmaker whose 2004 film Somersault starring Abby Cornish really deeply influenced me on a personal level, but also as a creator. And I sort of based my thesis film around um, some themes and elements of that film. It's very little seen, but it's worth seeing. The film was well received and it premiered at Cannes that year, but her Sundance premiere, The Berlin Syndrome, which I'm really excited to see, is only her third feature. It stars Teresa Palmer as an Australian photojournalist who becomes imprisoned in the apartment of a man she had a one-night stand with. So that's pretty terrifying. And Shortland's work deals with the dark themes and dark sides of sexuality and, for lack of a better term, learning things the hard way. So this is going to be very, very fascinating, I'm sure. So sort of in line with my choices for the movies I'm most excited about when I was speaking earlier in the podcast, I'm trying to get together a panel of filmmakers from the online shorts hub Super Deluxe for a roundtable podcast. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Super Deluxe, but it's this really uh, weird out there platform for content creators that has been making some incredible stuff since its relaunch back in 2015. And now they're actually at Sundance representing three short films, Deer Squad, Bear and Me, and The Chances. You might know the site for its political satire videos, which are edited by Vic Berger. I'm sure they've appeared on your Facebook feed at some point during the election. There are these weird re-edits of like the debates and like Donald Trump with like air horns in the background or sort of like cut really quickly or with like slow zooms in. Anyways, uh, if you're not, if you don't know those, you might know Joanne the Scammer, which is a web series that's really kind of taken off this year. Um, So I'm hoping to get the filmmakers they're representing there. And I'm also hoping to get some of the higher ups in the group to get together to talk about what it means to sort of create new media content. And we'll see. That That's be a very big topic. Yeah. Well, 
it's a it's a really it's very timely. Yeah, yeah, it's it's timely and it's it's kind of it may be a big topic, but it's like a very niche part of that world, which is just these weird, absurd videos that don't really have a place anywhere else. I guess like except for just YouTube. viral sharing. Yeah, just like viral sharing. I guess we'll see. We'll see what the point is. <laughs> <laughs> Well, believe it or not, Sundance Film Festival is not the only thing happening in the United States this week and weekend. There's this other little thing happening, you know, in D.C. I, I won't get into it. But, uh, yeah, on the 21st, I'm sure you- you've likely heard that there's an enormous um, women's march on Washington being planned. And it turns out that there are hundreds of satellite marches happening all over the country. And one of them is going to be in Park City, Utah. So outside of the films, I'm actually pretty excited to participate in and cover the march. It's not an official Sundance event, but it's being organized by uh, creative people from the filmmaking community. And Chelsea Handler, the late night host, is one of the the co-chairs. I also know that both Canon and Kodak are enlisting women to film the event, and I'll be filming with the new Osmo Plus that Santa brought me on Christmaca. Hey. How nice of Santa. Santa's so nice. Anyways, I'm super excited um, about all of that and the kind of stories that are going to emerge from it. So you'll obviously be able to find all this coverage on the site. And moving on to some other news, The documentary moment that we keep talking about continues, and we're not the only ones to notice. In fact, two big media companies both announced new opportunities for documentary filmmakers last week. The first is Vice. The company, of course, is already known for edgy journalism and nonfiction. But now, in addition to their TV channel, HBO show, and many online outlets, they're starting an official feature documentary production wing with nine films already in the works. Wow, ambitious. Yeah. For what we assume will be a very different kind of film, Nat Geo has also unveiled a new division cleverly titled National Geographic Documentary Films. But don't expect your typical nature films. CEO Courtney Monroe told Variety that the company is actually looking for timely issue-oriented work. In a nod to independent filmmakers, he said, Given the success of Before the Flood and He Named Me Malala, these are the types of stories we want to be telling. So if you're making edgy, newsy pop culture films or social issue climate-oriented films, consider Vice and Nat Geo. You can get some inspiration from the biggest doc news story of last week, the winners of the Cinema Eye Honors. Camera Person by Kirsten Johnson won the most awards with Outstanding Nonfiction Feature, Outstanding Editing, and Outstanding Cinematography. The docu-series by Ezra Edelman, OJ Made in America, was also a top winner. A prize unique to the Cinema Eye Honors is the Heterodox Award which honors those films that, quote, actively blur the line between narrative fiction and documentary. Interestingly, for the first time in Cinema Eye's history, this award went to an actual documentary this year, as opposed to a fictional film that takes on nonfiction qualities. And that winner was All These Sleepless Nights, directed by Michal Martak. Yeah, if there's one thing I thought about National Geographic, it's like, why can't it be more like Vice, you know? Moving on to some gear news. Charles isn't here this week, so I'm going to do my best to fill in his rather large shoes. He has huge feet. He does. does. Oh, man. And I have very small feet. Our first piece of news is that the Red Helium 8K has shattered the highest DxO mark sensor score by a whopping seven points. So if you aren't familiar with DxO mark, they are one of the most trusted industry standards when it comes to camera and lens image quality measurements and ratings. This week, they put the Red Helium 8K to the test, and it not only scored top marks, but actually as I said before, shattered 
the previous top DXO mark sensor score with a rating of 108. I want you to stick in a, a sound effect of shattering here. <laughs> there you go. Why do I need to do anything when I got you guys? <laughs> So to put that into context, there's only ever been one other sensor that broke the 100 mark, and that was the Red Epic Dragon with a score of 101. So in addition to now having the overall highest score, it has the highest score in two of three of DxO Mark's primary categories. It's number one in portrait, number one in landscape, and second in sports. The test highlights the camera's amazing dynamic range. They say, our measured dynamic range of 15.2 stops is very close to the 16.5 claimed by RED and is not only higher than any other APSH sensor we've tested, it is higher than the best of the full-frame sensors in our database. Wow, that's pretty cocky. They also raved about its color depth. Here also, they say, the Helium posts a record-setting score, measuring nearly 27 bits of color depth, higher than any of the full-frame DSLRs we have tested. Maybe most importantly for filmmakers is that it also saw significant improvements in low-light situations. Whereas the Red Dragon suffered somewhat in this area, finishing behind the Sony A7R2 and Nikon D810, the Helium has registered a significant improvement, jumping from 2745 on their score to 42 10 on their Ooh. score yeah that's it was a it's a huge there's a graphic that we have online that shows sort of the scores in bar graph form and you can really get a better sense for how much the camera has improved in that sense dxo mark attributes this to the combination of improved sensor design as well as temporal noise reduction so in not so successful products the lily drone which had 34 million dollars in pre-orders is now officially dead Lily Robotics halted production on their Lily drone this week after nearly two years of research and development that exhausted their entire $34 million in pre-order funding from Kickstarter backers. The Lily was one of the first of its kind, an ultra-portable drone that follows a tracking device that you wear on your wrist. All you had to do was throw the thing in the air and voila, it would follow you wherever you go. It was first thought that Lily would begin shipping in early 2016 for a street price of one grand. With the pre-order through the Kickstarter, however, you could nab the drone for almost half the price at $500. This incentive led to a whopping 60,000 pre-orders. Apparently, the follow-along drone was all ready to go, but the company didn't have enough money to actually fulfill the orders in production. So if you're one of the unlucky few that decided to go in on the pre-order for this drone, you can take solace in the fact that the company has stated it's going to use its remaining money to get you your money back. And we'll keep the gear news brief this week since I'm a dum-dum compared to Charles. And now a word from our sponsors. You're putting videos out into the world, and chances are, you need to collaborate to bring those videos to life. Fortunately, Vimeo has all new video review tools. Here's how they work. When you upload a rough cut to Vimeo, it gets its own private review page. You can share the page with as many people as you need. And you can leave time-coded notes anywhere on any frame of the video. Your feedback stays organized and secure. No more annoying email threads, no more confusing comments. Instead, everything you need to upload, review, and share videos all in one place. And that place is Vimeo. To learn about more features, visit join.vimeo.com slash review. Welcome back. Yeah. <laughs> that was weird, right? <laughs> this week on Ask No Film School, Jerome Poole is a documentary filmmaker who is ready to get his own camera so he doesn't have to rely on someone else to go out and shoot with him. He's looking for a run-and-gun type camera with good image quality and an emphasis on strong low-light capability. If this sounds like you, you can call Jerome on his private number. Get your own camera! 
<laughs> so what Jer- that was the background. Here's what Jerome is actually asking. With a budget of around $3,300, should I purchase a Sony A7S II, a Panasonic GH4 or 5, or a Canon C100? Liz, what do you think you should buy? Well, thanks for the question, Jerome. I am 100% in the same boat here. I'm thinking about my next documentary camera purchase. But it actually turns out that since Drone first posted, and with the help of more than 50 comments on our boards, thank you, No Film School community, he purchased a used Canon C100. But if you're also in the same situation, I will tell you what factors I'm taking into consideration. So Jerome received a lot of good advice on the boards, and a straightforward tip was that if you have time, the best thing is obviously to rent or borrow all of the cameras you're considering before purchasing and give them a whirl. This is important to gauge not only how the image looks, but how it feels in your hand and how easy it is for you to access the functions that you'll use most often. Of the main factors, aesthetics are really your personal choice. I can't guide you there. But aside from trying out the camera yourself, there are lots of lens tests and pieces of sample footage. And of course, films already shot that are online. Many of these are on our site. So you, in addition to testing it out yourself, you probably want to look at what other people have shot with the gear that you're looking at, taking into consideration that they might have had color correction and everything. Still, very helpful. The other questions that I'd ask myself are, is it comfortable to hold and use for long periods and portable and flexible in terms of what it can do without a lot of extras? Jerome said he's doing run and gun. So, you know, this is not like a feature. Remember that you could be shooting for hours at a time without ever putting the camera down, without a break. Um, Further, a small and unobtrusive form factor is even more important for documentaries where you might be in like really intimate situations. So you want as kind of minimally invasive a rig as possible. Another question to ask yourself is if you're on your own, can you record audio right into the camera or does it require external recording? And if it does, do you want to deal with that? Either way, you definitely want to invest in a good shotgun mic and probably a lav kit. In addition to the camera itself, you never want to be using the on-camera mic, even in the best cameras. I'll also quickly mention that we covered a Doc NYC panel about this very topic in a post called What's the Best Gear for Making Your Documentary? And you can read some more in-depth tips from documentary DPs and product experts from Sony and Ablecine um, on that post on nofilmschool.com. So good luck, documentarians. I will let you know what I end up with. We are switching things up a little bit this week. We're going to talk about some upcoming movies for you to check out now and follow that with our grant and opportunity deadlines at the bottom of the show. So for our loyal listeners, I'm looking at you, Mom and Dad. Please let us know what you think of this flow. Hitting HBO on January 23rd is Beware the Slender Man, which is a very terrifying original documentary about the Slenderman stabbings in 2014. So if you aren't already familiar with the lore of the Slenderman, the strange phantom... Are you saying the Slenderman? (laughs) Slenderman. (laughs) Jason Slenderman? (laughs) If you aren't already familiar with the lore of the Slenderman, the strange phantom horror figure was created by a member of the Something Awful website community as a part of a call to create a paranormal image through Photoshop. The figure exploded like wildfire, and soon other members started doctoring their own photographs of Slenderman. Eventually, there were whole forums and entire websites dedicated to writing stories about the Slenderman. He was basically an internet urban legend. There are stories where Slenderman either kills his victims himself or compels his victims to kill each other, which led 
to the story of this doc about two 12-year-old girls from Wisconsin who allegedly lured another girl of the same age into the woods and stabbed her 19 times. They did this ostensibly to impress the Slender Man so they could become his proxies or followers and prove their loyalty to him. To get the whole story, check out the doc on January 23rd. You know, no matter how many times we've covered this story, every time it just strikes me as so creepy and fascinating. Maybe it's because it's right behind you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Speaking about things that are right behind you, Where to Invade Next is coming out on January 22nd. Did you see that? It was really good. It was great. Yeah, I love it. That's why, but I saw it a little bit ago. That's why it was right behind me. Oh. Yeah. Um, I saw it at the New York Film Festival in 2015. It's Michael Moore's 2015 foray into the policies of foreign countries. And it was kind of a departure from the heavy-handed seriousness of some of his previous talks. He started out as sort of like a com- comedy documentarian guy, but then his his movies no, got a little bit more. His first doc was not comedy. They, well, they he more he like, had like a comedic edge. I've never seen his first doc, so I can't speak to that, but I know that, you know, like Fahrenheit 9-11 and those sort of docs were kind of on the comedy scale in a way. It follows more as he makes his way through much of Europe and Scandinavia, highlighting progressive government policies he thinks the United States should adopt for itself. So these include Italy and its generous vacation time allotments, which are very generous. <coughs> generous vacation. Liz. Really? Also known as it's my paid time off. Please. <laughs> France with its gourmet school lunches. Liz. <coughs> uh, Ryan, where are you? Help me. <laughs> Norway and its prison system. Emily. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I can't do anything about it. <laughs> or Iceland and its strong female presence in government and business. Oh, I, I know a thing or two about that. Yeah. Huh? Charles. <laughs> it's a really interesting film in that he essentially builds his own utopia. And after seeing what Moore digs up on his journey, it's hard to imagine anyone disagreeing with much of what he's found. Check it out. Coming to Netflix is a film by one of my fellow film fatals, Lori Welts. It's called About Scout. And the story is of a rebellious young girl who convinces a suicidal young man to go on a road trip with her across Texas to track down her little sister. Sounds like a great idea. <laughs> What's about Scout about? I don't know, but it's <laughs> it stars India Anenga, James Frenchville, and Onada April. Very diverse names for a cast about Texas. There are a lot of letters in those names, and I'm sure it's a good film. A lot of vowels. Speaking about vowels, The Founder comes out on January 20th, this Friday. Michael Keaton stars as Ray Kroc, a salesman who turned two brothers' fast food eatery, some of you may have heard of this place, McDonald's into one of the biggest restaurant businesses in the world. The buzz surrounding the film seems to suggest that Keaton's performance could lead him to yet another Dark Horse Oscar nomination, and the film is directed by John Lee Hancock and stars Nick Offerman and John Carroll Lynch as the McDonald Brothers. Do you guys know where the expression Dark Horse came from? Because I am so fascinated by it. Uh, Probably horse racing? Yes. Okay, I'll look it up and let you know next week. Good. Hey, are there any good grant deadlines coming up? I haven't really heard much. Well, you'd think that we would have talked about it before the movies, but we're now going to get to it now. Oh, go for it. So here's some good grant deadlines coming up. Liz, do you want to talk about the Magnum Foundation Photography and Social Justice Fellowship? The Magnum Foundation Photography and Social Justice Fellowship has a deadline of January 24th. This program supports and trains early career and emerging photographers, artists, journalists, scholars, and activists who are passionate about challenging injustice, pursuing social equality, and advancing human rights through photography. It takes place over the course of six months, includes 
two labs, one in the summer and one the following winter, held at CUNY's Graduate School of Journalism here in New York. And these include technical trainings, lectures, and discussions exploring photography as a medium for social engagement. The best part is the fellowship covers the cost of travel, room, and board, and you get a modest stipend. Plus, when you're here in New York, you can come visit us at No Film School. The LEF Moving Image Fund for Production and Post-Production has a deadline on January 27th. This grant is specifically for New England documentary filmmakers with film budgets under $350,000. A maximum of six grants of $15,000 each will be awarded to projects in the production phase during LEF's major grants review, and a maximum of three grants of $25,000 each will be awarded to projects in the post-production phase during LEF's major grants review. But... In order to be eligible for post-production support, the project for which you are applying must have already received previous LEF support. Double whammy. And here's some festival deadlines for you. The Oregon Independent Film Festival has a deadline on January 22nd. It takes place from September 16th to 30th in Portland, Oregon. If you apply by the 22nd, you get a special discount rate. And I hear they have an especially good documentary program. And the New York No Limits film series has a deadline of January 23rd. It takes place April 12th here in Brooklyn, New York. And perhaps it's a better place to exhibit your short film than your feature. Shorts will screen at their short film events throughout the season and are eligible for an additional screening at the summit in November. And films exhibited at said summit will then be reviewed by a jury who will select the Best Feature and Short Film Award winners. Those winners will be awarded $750 and $500 prize, respectively, at the conclusion of the summit. And the Vail Film Festival has a deadline of January 25th. It may not be Park City, but it's close. This fest takes place March 30th to April 2nd in Vail, Colorado, of course. It's been named one of the top 10 destination film festivals in the world by Movie Maker Magazine. And this year's festival will have a special focus on work by female filmmakers. What up? All films submitted and screened at the 2017 event must have one woman involved as either director, producer, or screenwriters. So speaking of Park City, next time you hear us, it will be from there, if our flight lands in the storm. (laughs) And while we're on the ground, we'll also be recording lots of No Film School interview podcasts, so there's plenty to look forward to for us and for you. Meanwhile, you can read about everything that we talked about on today's podcast and get links to all the opportunities on the podcast post at nofilmschool.com, along with lots of other articles about the craft of filmmaking. And while you're thinking about it, please subscribe and rate us with five whole stars on iTunes. And of course, stay in touch. I'm at Liz Film on Twitter. At E.L. Booter. At Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim. And you can reach us all on Twitter at No Film School. Yes, we'll be there. See you next week from Park City. Whoop.